you're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I, I thank you tonight for this opportunity to just gather to just be in your presence, Father, to know that you've told us that we're two or three are gathered, Father, that your presence is with us. And Lord, I can think of no greater blessing or no greater honor than to, to just sit here tonight, to know that in us, around us, between us, all through this sanctuary, Father, you exist. We can't find a place to go that you're not there. We can't go and, and, and outrun your love, your care, and your goodness for us. And I just thank you, Father, for that you have made this night all about what is about to occur. You have done something. You have worked. You have accomplished. You have transformed lives. And the evidence, Father, is seen tonight in all that we will see and hear. So we thank you, Father, for your presence. We thank you that, that you have come into this place in our lives, through our lives, to link us together, to form in us a family. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to, we're going to look at uh, Mark chapter 8 tonight, if you will go there with me in this, uh, this very unusual story that only Mark uh, only Mark records, it's Mark eight twenty one. I shared this morning in Sunday school, and it, uh, it was interesting to, to see the different reactions, but I, I shared with them this morning that I didn't realize that the Mark who wrote as the scribe of the book of, of, book of Mark was also the same John Mark who was with Paul. I don't know why that had never hit me, but this is the same uh, as the John Mark that messed up that Paul sent away. This is the same Mark. Uh, did you know that, Elaine? No. I didn't either. But I was reading and looking because what I was really looking for was the fact that Mark wasn't a disciple who told him about these stories that he recorded. He wasn't an eyewitness to the storm that we had looked at this morning in Bible study, so someone had to tell him. And according to scholars and, and, and all that I could read, the most likely person who told Mark because of their association was Peter. And the fact that in this particular place, when Jesus puts the disciples in the boat and sends them to the other side to Bethsaida, and in the night, he sees them in the storm, as I shared in, in the message this morning. But when you read that story, exact same story in the book of Matthew, everything is exactly alike. Putting him in the boat, telling him to go, go, go the other side. He goes up on the mountain to pray. In the fourth watch, he sees them struggling. But it says here, when Jesus came walking on the water, Peter said, Jesus, if that's you, let me, let me come to you. And we had a long conversation about why when Peter was telling Mark the story, he left the part out about him walking on the water. 
because I, I, I told him, I said, if, if, I'm, if I'm writing a resume uh, or my memoirs, I'm starting with I walked on the water. But Peter left it out in his telling of Mark. And it was, we talked about the significance of why Peter would leave that out. Well, the recordings and the things of Mark are different than others in some measure. And again, part of that explanation is that there were about eight different stories where Peter's actions were not very becoming, and they never get recorded in the book of Mark. They're only recorded in other, in other books. So uh, we, we, had, we, had some, we had some people who were very nice to Peter, and said, well, he just wanted to focus on Jesus, which was probably right. Uh, then there was me who said, I think he was, I think he was protecting his reputation. <clears throat> like, they've heard enough about this, because I said probably everywhere he went, everybody wanted to ask him about that moment he walked on the water and, and beginning to sink. So uh, he, for, for, in Mark, he just kind of left that out. Well, here we are in Mark chapter 8 in an unusual story, only recorded by Mark. Uh, in verse 21, and he said unto them, how is it that you do not understand? Talking to his disciples. And he comes to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. I think that's interesting. And when he had spit in, on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked if he saw aught. What did you see? And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell it to anyone in the town what I've done. This particular story this miraculous moment is unusual in several ways. Again, one is it's, the only, it's only recorded here. But the second and the most noticeable one is that this is the only time recorded in a healing that it took two steps. Now, to me, that is interesting. Why in this particular healing did it take him touching him and spitting in his, in his eyes, put his hands on him, and he, and he asked him what he saw. And there are many scholars who, who say many things about why this was necessary. I have a bit of a different opinion, and I'm not going to explain all the different reasons why. But this is, as it's recorded, is the only time that something was done. Jesus spitting on him and putting his hands on him, and the man could only see men as trees but walking. And then he touches him again, and then the man can see clearly. Some try to reduce the first one as not miraculous, but only the, the, only the second one was really the miracle. I don't know how I can read it that way. So I have to search for an understanding different than what I would typically understand. So the real story of this miracle is that it's really two miracles in one. Or maybe more accurately, it's a two-staged miracle. After the first stage, again, the man can see, but it's blurry. And again, only upon that second touch can he see clearly. 
And again, all the Bible commentaries remark on this because there's nothing else like it in the Gospels. There's just nothing like this moment recorded anywhere else. But since he never did anything that was random, he didn't do anything that was less important than than another. As I share often with you, I teach, I believe that Jesus' life is perfect theology. Jesus was fully human. He he made that choice. As 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 we say it, Never, never less than God, but never more than man. He never functioned in a moment as anyone other than who you and I consistently are and will be. Because if he would have drawn a difference between us and him, we would have pointed to that difference every single time and say, well, this isn't relative to me because he was different. The intention and the purpose was that there would be no difference. So that we wouldn't be able to point at things and say, well, well, that was only Jesus. That was unique to him. No, his equipping is my equipping. I have what he had. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Jesus, a child of God, you and I, children of God. If I believe the scripture, behold what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we could be called the children of God, that I could be called the son of God. Now, I'm not trying to establish myself as as Jesus in his deity, but I have to associate with Jesus in his humanity for for this to become important and for the teaching to be real to you and I. So if he's not going to do anything without a purpose, and nothing that he's going to do is random, we need to discover what's unique in this story that causes this two-stage miracle. The text is, merely relates the story. It doesn't explain the deeper meaning. That is what the Spirit allows us to do. So it brings us back to the question, what's going on here? What's unique about this one? What's different about this one that we need to discover? So to get to the root of the matter, we need to ask just a couple of questions. First of all, it's why a two-stage miracle? Well, let's answer it in the negative first. It was not because of any lack in Jesus. He wasn't less capable here than in any other miracle. So it wasn't because he lacked anything. As as if he didn't have the power to heal him all at one time, we know better than that. It was not because this man's blindness was a particularly hard case. There are four different instances in the scriptures where Jesus healed someone that was blind. This one was no harder. So it wasn't, it took two steps because the man's problem was worse. And it was not because Jesus tried the first time and failed and had to try again. So we can rule out all those things. Well, that doesn't leave us many. When I rule out the things that it wasn't, it doesn't lead us to many that that it could have been. So we still don't have the answer. It wasn't Jesus. It wasn't the man's problem. It wasn't failure on anyone's part. But we know that there had to be a reason. We don't have it yet, but we know there has to be one. So when in doubt, we go back to the scripture. We go back and discover something. Now, y'all have heard me say this. I think you heard me say it within the last couple of weeks. I've had some very good teachers, 
and Ian Thomas and Dale Kane and multitudes of others, and they will say something very consistently. If you're going to study the Bible, there are three rules. Y'all know those rules by now because I know you've committed them to memory. The first rule is you have to study the Bible in context. The second rule is that you have to study the Bible in context. And the third rule is you have to study the Bible in context. Think you got those? I think we can get them. It's context. It's always important to understand what else is going on in the story so the story becomes clear. So we need to find out what comes before and maybe even what comes after the story that we're reading. So if you go back into the beginning of Mark 8, go back into what was happening before this, there, was, there had been the miraculous feeding of 4,000. That's in verses 1 through 10. And immediately afterward, the Pharisees came to argue with him. That's verses 11 and 12. He has the encounter with the Pharisees. After Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, he warned them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, please don't ever be confused. Leaven in the scripture is never good. There is some teaching that tries to twist leaven into something good. It's never good. It's always false doctrine. There's a warning. Beware of the false doctrine of the Pharisees. That happens in verse 15. We... Let's, let's just go back and let's read from there. Let's go back and read from 15. And he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he said unto them, why reason you because you have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Have, you, have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see not. And having ears, hear not. And do you not remember? Are you beginning by the context to understand why he's giving them this two-part miracle? When we, when we read this morning from John chapter 11... When Jesus comes and he, and to Lazarus' tomb and he says, Father, thank you for, what, for hearing me. Thank you for what you're about to do. And by the way, Father, I'm only saying this because I need for those who are hearing me to hear the prayer so that they will know that I have been sent by you. Who was he doing that for? He was doing it so that the ones around would hear something so they would get a message by what he was saying and what he was praying. Do you think it's possible that this miracle happened in two stages so that those around would get a message that they needed to hear? Very likely because what's he struggling with with the disciples here? Let me read it again. Verse 17, and when Jesus knew it, he said unto them, why reason you because you have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Have ye you, have you your heart yet hardened, having eyes? See ye not, having ears? Hear you not, and do you not remember? When I break the five loaves among 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments take you up? They said in him, 12. And when the seven among 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments took you up? And they said, seven. What's this two-stage miracle about? 
He's trying to tell his disciples something. It's not his lack of power. It's not the enormity of the problem. He's saying, I want to, I want to demonstrate in this miracle something that you as my disciples need to learn. And man, when we get to see what he was telling them. Now, I use to preach very often. This is one of the older versions of this, but I use this Bible called a Pilgrim Bible. They published them in 48, 52, and I think 76. After that, they changed them, and they're not very good anymore. But in, this, in these versions, they're very good. I want to read you something, a note that's, that's captured to go along with uh, verse. Let me see, where, where is that verse? Which one is it? Uh, where it says they bring a blind man to him. Uh, which, what scripture is that? Yeah, 22. Yeah, 22. They bring a blind man to him. I want to read what the note says about they bring a blind man to him. It's a pretty small print, so let me get it where I can see it. Mark alone tells of this miracle. Our Lord restored the sight of other blind men, but this miracle is noted for the gradual way in which the man's sight was restored. All of Jesus' miracles, all of Christ's miracles are parables, that is, there's a meaning behind them. The parable which this miracle contains is very beautiful. We learn how our spiritual vision is renewed. It is by the presence and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment we come to Jesus Christ and accept him as our Savior, we no longer are children of darkness, but are children of light. Ephesians 5.8, Colossians 1.13. Though we do not see everything clearly when we are first saved, we are no longer blind. As we read clearly when we are first saved, we are no longer blind. As we read the Word of God and spend time in fellowship with the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit reveals things more clearly to us. Instead of seeing men as trees, as in verse 24, we see clearly as in verse 25. And then he gives comparisons with these verses. He's telling his disciples that you're going to see, but you're going to see progressively. You're going to see, your eyes have been opened, and you're going to be able to see and understand some things I do. You're going to be able to grasp, but some of it to you is going to be blurry. But he's telling his disciples, there's coming a day when you're going to see all things clearly. Now, when was that day? When did the disciples blur finally clear up? At Pentecost when he gave them the Holy Spirit so that they had the same eyes that he did. So he's telling them very strangely that you can anticipate, we can anticipate that when we're saved, we're not going to be blind anymore. We have eyes to see. We have ears to hear the things of God. We will be able. But when the Holy Spirit comes, when we actually can take in the Spirit of God so that my eyes see what his eyes see, my heart knows what his heart knows, I can receive fully those things that he has a desire to tell me, I will be able to see men clearly. You can tell that this miracle coming, sandwiched in here as it does, Jesus is dealing with the disciples who did not yet comprehend. Were they getting it? Yes. Were they being enlightened? Yes. You can't walk through the feeding of 5,000 and there'd be 12 
Because this is what he reminds them. When I fed 5,000, how many baskets? 12. When I fed 4,000, how many baskets? Seven. He's reminding them, you have seen dynamic things. You have seen miraculous things. But right now, those things are a blur to you. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day when, when I, he touched his eyes. But when we read this miracle, took the blind man by the hand, led him out of town, and when he had spit in his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked what he saw and looked up as men, as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw every man clearly. You and I will not be restored. Until, and again, I give anybody wide berth to, to question and to, and to discover what you need to un, un, discover. But full restoration, full salvation doesn't come simply because I have said to Jesus, yes, be my Savior. I'll share with you again the, the, the conversation that I had with Andrew, the, Andrew and Lisa that were here this morning. He's sitting with a, a doctor and he asked the doctor who he knew was a believer this question. If you were out in the desert? No, he asked him first, what's the greatest gift that God's ever given us? What's the greatest gift God's ever given? Now, I, I know what we're, we, we want to shoot to this answer. I want, I, I'd ask you to reserve that answer for just a second. <clears throat> Andrew asked this doctor, said, I'd like for you to consider something. If you're in, if you're in the desert and you're out of water. And somewhere along the way, a camel used your drinking cup as a bathroom. And somebody comes along and says, I'll clean that cup for you. I will sterilize it and I will make it as good as new and ready to use. And they go and they do exactly what was promised. <clears throat> And they come back to you. Jaron, I'm coming to you and I've got this cup. And I mean, it has been polished. It's been cleaned. It's been sterilized. It's been steamed. And I hand you back this cup out here in the middle of the desert where you're dying of thirst. And I hand you back this clean cup. Is that great news? Not anything in it, is there? So what would you think if you had the clean cup? What would you think would be the greatest gift if you're that thirsty? The water that would fill it. You see, we have often stopped, not incorrectly, but we often stop saying the greatest gift that we've ever received is Jesus. And absolutely, he acknowledges this himself in the scripture. He came to clean the cup. He, he came to clean that which no one could clean. He came to remove the filth that nobody could remove. He drank the cup that included the filth of my life. He cleaned my cup. He cleaned this vessel. But why did he clean it? He says in John 14, 15, and 16, I have to go away. I have to go away. It's, it's expedient that I go away because if I don't go away, I can't clean the cup. I can't clean the vessel. But I'm going away. Why? So that now that I've cleaned the cup, I can send the Holy Spirit to you so that you can begin to function as you were originally designed. Once again, God didn't die to get us off this earth into heaven. He he died so that he could get himself out of heaven back into us. The great gift is that we now have a clean cup and a full cup 
full of the Holy Spirit, overflowing, that's when we are restored. There is no restoration in any of us absent the indwelling and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Because why did he die? He tells us this himself. I'm going away so that I can send somebody because at that time, the only person in whom the Holy Spirit could dwell was Jesus because he was sinless. But if I go away, I can, I can establish in you righteousness. And if I can establish righteousness in you, my righteousness in you so that you're now clean before the Father, I can give you the Holy Spirit. And now there's not just one person with the Holy Spirit equipped and ready to go. Now there are millions of you. And everywhere you go, my spirit goes with you because I really would like to ride along because there's things I would like to accomplish. He's telling his disciples, you can see a little now, but when you are fully restored, back to normal function. That was, this is not unusual function. This was normal function because Adam and Eve could see and hear. They knew they were standing before God in their innocence, being clean before him until they had made the choice that they made. It's interesting tonight, especially in the fact that we have two that are going to be baptized. Now, y'all have heard me teach this many times. But there is a uniqueness to baptism that has been lost, often missed. As I shared with with these this afternoon, in my growing up years, when when we spoke of baptism, the phrase that was used was an outward expression of an inward change. We're simply showing, publicly showing, something that God has already done. And in, in, in parts, that is absolutely true. But it's not the fullness of what God intended for us to understand about baptism. I'll do a short version of this, but in Galatians chapter 4, we, we read where it says in verse 1 that a, a child of a king and a child of a servant, when they're born and when they're young, don't look very different from one another. They're both taught, but the child of the king is put under the care of governors and tutors and taught and trained and raised under the watchful eye of the father. Because when there's one quality again that the father sees, That father, according to custom, is going to take that son into the public arena, like it would be very much like you taking Heath, to the courthouse in Leveland and standing there on the steps and announcing to everybody that was around that Heath is my son. And everybody's going to say, well, that's kind of crazy. We've already known that. Of course he's your son. And then he says, no, 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 no. That's not the point here. I'm announcing to you that he's my son because he's about to be about my business. He's going to carry the authority of my word. He's going to carry the reputation of my life. He's going to carry that which I now give him. This is more than just an announcement. Because in that day and time, they would take this boy and they would, the father would announce, announce to, the, to the whoever would hear, this is my son. And he would take the child's cloak off that indicated that he was a child and he'd put an adult robe on him and he'd put shoes on his feet. 
But in the most powerful moment, he would take away the child's favorite toy. And in the place of taking this childish thing from them, the father would slip a ring on that son's finger. And that ring had a crest in it. So that whenever that son would make a deal, a contractual deal, if he pressed that ring into the clay, he would seal the deal. So again, if he says to somebody, yes, I'll buy, I'll buy 100 head of cattle, and he presses this ring into that, the father has to release the money. Or if he says, I will sell cattle to you, the father has to release the cattle because that ring carried the authority of the father. So what was the quality that the father would look for before he would hand that ring over to that kid? He was always watching as the kid was growing, as the kid was being raised. He was always watching for this moment of obedience because then he knew something. Then he knew that he could give this kid a ring and the kid would never use it outside of the will of the father. That that happened day after day, family by family, that, that practice occurred. Galatians chapter 4. So why do you think this is happening in this moment? When Jesus comes to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says, I know who you are. They were related. I know who you are. And if we did this right, you'd be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I do this so that all things will be fulfilled. And what did this listening father hear? Obedience. He heard obedience. And what were the words that came from him in this now in this public arena that had never happened before? What happened in this public arena? What did the father say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus was publicly adopted by his own father. You think Jesus didn't already know that he was the son of God? Absolutely he did. But now in this public moment, the father announces, that's my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Why? Because of obedience. So we have to begin by the announcement that this baptism tonight of these two is an act of obedience. It's not symbolic. It's obedience. But when, when the father saw this and he said, this is my beloved son, he did two more things. He gave Jesus the same authority that that son received in the ring. He just didn't get it in a ring. How did Jesus get it? Oh, here comes this Holy Spirit as if it were a dove. And it descends on him. And the book of John says it not only descends on him, but it remains. So now Jesus is equipped He has the authority of the Father because the Father knows now that he can release the Holy Spirit to him because Jesus will never use that authority outside of the Father's will. Isn't that what he said? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In John 5, 19, when he says, without the Father, I can do nothing. I I can only do what I see my Father do. I can only speak what I hear my Father speak. We see, we hear those words of Jesus. Now, 
now baptized. He said, I'm never going to function outside of the Father's will. I have one objective, and that's to come and to complete and do the will of the Father. And the last thing that happened, it says in those three accounts when Jesus was baptized, it says all of heaven was opened unto him. He's ministering now under a full heaven, so he knows if Danny needs love, he has access to this full provision. He's in that storehouse where there is an abundance because it's all been delivered to him. He can reach that which is now available. He can pass through him and go to whomever he needs and know that there will never be a moment when there's not going to be enough love. There won't be enough forgiveness, enough grace, enough mercy because he's ministering under an open heaven. So what should our baptism mean? What should our act of obedience mean? It means in that very same moment, when you and I choose by that act of obedience, the Father makes an announcement. Now, are you, because you believe, are you already a child of God? Yes. If you died before this baptism, would you go to heaven? Yes. But as, as, I, was asking, as I was asking June about Jaron, wouldn't it be strange for you to say, yeah, he's my son. Absolutely, he's my son. Look at him. He's my son. I gave birth to him. But I don't want to give him anything. I don't, I don't want to buy clothes. I don't want to buy diapers. I don't want to buy him this. I don't want to buy him school books. I don't want to equip him to be my son. I just want you to know he's my son. How strange would that look? But what's happening at this baptism is that you and I are children of God at our baptism. He's equipping us to live as that child, delivering to us that authority, delivering to us that assurance, delivering to us the promises of God, delivering to us the reality that not only does he declare me to be a child of God because I put my faith and trust in him, he's going to equip me so that I can live each day according to that same place. How strange it would be for him to have us as children and never equip us to be children of the king. Baptism is that equipping. It is a transforming moment. Saved, redeemed by the blood, regenerate because of the new life he gave us by his spirit. That's our salvation. Jesus redeemed us. His resurrection, Pentecost, is our regeneration. We got new life. And it's a powerful one. Y'all remember the first Sunday that I taught this? It's been three or four or five or six or nine years ago. Uh, on, it was on a, on a Father's Day. I preached this. As I, as I mentioned this morning with Shay's mother here, she was here that morning, and she was one of the 38 or 40 that we baptized that morning because so many realized that they had never experienced a baptism like this, that they're bapt had, had, they, had they gone through the exercise of baptism Yes. Did they know it was an act of obedience that would unleash this authority in them, establish over them this public announcement that you are, that you are my child? I know who the last one baptized that Sunday morning was. It was me. Because I, too, had never received that type of baptism this, under, under this understanding. Yeah, I was baptized at eight years old, and I went through the motions. Very grateful for that baptism. But this one was transforming. And before that two weeks was over, we had baptized almost 60 people just 
because there, had, there was an awareness that they had not ever experienced what was intended in this baptism. I'm going to ask the two of you, three of you, to go and get ready, and I'll be back there in just a second, we'll, and we will uh, be witnesses to this moment. While they're getting ready, <clears throat> as we come back to this passage in, in Mark, uh, in Mark chapter 8, there's a few things that we, you and I need to learn just coming out of this. Some, some of them are very obvious. One is that even though there were four different Healings of the blind, not a single one of those four was alike. We can't, we can't put God in a can. We can't assign him an action. It's because, again, if, if, he had, if, if, if for four times he would have spit on the ground, picked up the mud, rubbed it in the guy's eyes, I would promise you today you could go to Mardell's and buy a self-mixed little bottle of mud. Because we would have formalized it into something that we, we could have sold and we would have been out there marketing this mud made out of spit. Four different times because he works in miraculous ways. He doesn't do it all the same way. The second, he deals with us according to us. That is something that I think that the Christian world has largely lost. We have standardized everything. That this is the only way that God acts. Wouldn't that be strange? He is... Clever enough, capable enough, remarkable enough to create about six billion of us on the planet right now, and very few of us look alike. If he's that good, if he's that creative, that capable, I don't think it's a staggering thought to know that God can speak to me in a way that's sensitive to me and speak to Danny in a way that's sensitive to Danny, to Teresa in a way that will speak to Teresa. Because once again, if I'm capable of speaking to three kids that Jan and I have together and recognize that there's uniqueness in the way I talk to them because they are three individuals, I should expect that God can deal with us individually, uniquely, because of how he made us, and he knows it. Third, we don't get better at the same rate and in the same way. It requires a great deal of patience. A great deal of grace, especially, and maybe not especially, I'm going to say it this way, it may not be quite correct. This is something that, that I experienced and that Parker's about to walk into profoundly. The minute that I begin to have expectations of you and how fast you're going to move forward, then I'm going to let you down. How fast you move forward, how fast we grasp, how fast we learn, how fast we, re we recover, how fast we heal, the things, you know, that we become ready, all the things in our story. If I ever have an expectation of you, then I can tell you for certain, here's a bunch of us about to get the same thing, <clears throat> some amber alert, so we're going to, we're going to be transformed sometimes completely suddenly in our journey. However, as we walk this Christian life, it takes a great deal of grace to let somebody walk at a different pace than you. 
we want people to get it. We'd like for them to get it now, and it doesn't always happen. And the last thing is we have to acknowledge that my complete understanding, as we talked a lot about this morning, is that God designed us to be spiritual beings with a soul and a body that can reflect the spirit. But my truth, my, the very dynamic of my life comes because I am a, I am a spirit-filled child of God. Cleaned by his blood, filled by his spirit, then and only then am I fully restored. There's a lot in this as to why he would do this in two stages. It's nice to know what it wasn't. But in looking at this again, it's nice to know what it was. He was telling his disciples, you may not see it all now, but the day will come when you will see, and it will be more than as men as trees walking. You'll see them clearly. It will require your full restoration. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.